Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. One of the biggest obstacles to streamlining information sharing in the health field is the data itself. Various health information systems for decades simply haven't been compatible with one another, and that makes things slower and less efficient for patients, for healthcare practitioners, and the industry itself. Recently, Health and Human Services updated something known as TEFCA, the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement. TEFCA is all about interoperability of health information. Here with what's going on, the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology at HHS, Mickey Trapathy. Dr. Trapathy, good to have you with us. Thanks. Really delighted to be here, Tom. And there seem to be two parallel efforts that have been going on for some time. One is about the data. One is about getting more institutions to use electronic health records, which has been partially successful. But tell us more about TEFCA, what it is, and what's going on with it. So, you know, let's just break that down a little bit. First, about getting people to use electronic health record systems. We've actually had remarkable success over the last decade. So owing to a lot of federal support in the way of incentives to provider organizations, as well as a lot of private contribution and sweat equity from uh, physicians and those adopting systems, now 97% of hospitals and about 80% of physician offices across the country use a certified electronic health record. So not just any old electronic health record system, but they use an electronic health record system that's certified by my office, the National Coordinator's Office. So we don't actually have a big problem with respect to adoption of electronic health records among hospitals and physician offices. We've done a tremendous amount of work over a dozen years on the public and private side to get that in place. But what we're trying to do now is make it as easy as possible for those systems to share information with each other in the best interest of patient care. Got it. And that's where the data interoperability piece comes in. And so TEFCA is all about the data, fair to say? It's all about sharing data among those systems. Yep. In a safe, reliable, accurate, privacy-protecting way. Is the challenge, therefore, getting the systems to maybe update or alter in such a way that the data becomes more interoperable? That is to say, if your gastroenterologist has one system and your eye doctor has another why those two would never need to mix, I don't know. But the idea is that one practitioner could see what's going on with another, again, at the micro level. And also, I guess, for the research community, having interoperable data from multiple sources of systems would be really important. Yeah. And certainly one part of it is making sure that the data is you know, sort of compatible. So that if I get information from another practice, from another provider, that I actually can make use of it and not have to go through, you know, all sorts of expense and heroic efforts on my side to figure out what that data is. Because the minute you do that, we know that people will do what everyone does and that you and I do in our regular lives, which is, well, I got it electronically, but it's too hard to figure out. So just send me a fax <laughs> or let me just pick up the call. Let me just pick up the phone or can you just mail it to me? Right. It's a lot easier. So what you need to do is say, how do you make this electronic mode easier for people? than the existing ways of doing it. So one part is the data itself. And I'm happy to report that that's a big part of what we've done with the electronic health records. So as a part of those electronic health records that, you know, as I said, cover the vast majority of hospitals and most physician offices, they're required to support a minimum data set standard that we call the US Core Data for Interoperability, US CDI. And that's like a minimum data set that standardized data that covers all of the data mostly that you would uh, you know, think of, Tom, even though I assume you're not a physician. But if you were off the top of your head going to say, 
what information do I think, you know, my a doctor would want to have? Well, it's your problems, your allergies, your medications, your lab reports, you know, your uh, results of imaging, um, those kinds of things. That's what's in that minimum data set. So that we've been able to accomplish. It's absolutely not perfect, but there's a lot of commonality there. So if you're in Nome, Alaska, or in Sarasota, Florida, you can have a pretty good expectation that the data you're going to get out of an EHR system is roughly compatible. Again, not perfect, but pretty good. The challenge is how do you connect up those systems so that when I ask you for a record for, let's say, electronically, that I know, A, you are who you claim to be. How do I know that you're not Joe's hacking shop, you know, trying to hack into medical records and then sell them on the dark web? And that B, you're actually authorized to have that information. So there's a difference between saying, well, you are a physician office, but how do I know that you actually see that patient? Because if I give that information to you and you actually don't have a treatment relationship with that patient, that's a violation of privacy from an ethical perspective. It also could be a violation of law as it relates to HIPAA nationally as well as state. So that's what these networks do is provide that overlay of governance and technical and policy requirements that give everyone assurance that everyone on this network is a responsible actor. And if they don't act responsibly, responsibly there'll be penalties and sanctions associated with it. We're speaking with Dr. Mickey Tripathi. He is National Coordinator for Health Information Technology at the Department of Health and Human Services. And who are the parties to TEFCA? I imagine, you know, the federal government is more the convener, but also a party to it. Yeah, and no, I think you said that right. The federal government is a convener right now. So the direction that we got from the 21st Century Cures Act of 2016 was for ONC, my office, National Coordinator's Office, to help to develop a nationwide network of networks interoperability model. And what that means is, you know, why do we say network of networks? The analogy I like to use is think about the way cell phone networks or ATM networks, for that matter, work today in the market. Let's take cell phones because everyone's very familiar with those. You've got AT&T and Verizon and T-Mobile and Sprint. And all of those are actually private networks, if you think about it, right? They're private commercial networks, but they are connected on the back end via a network like, you know, governance technical specifications, expectations about, you know, how they exchange information in a way that you and I have the experience of it being a single network, right? We don't worry about, you know, well, Tom, you bought an AT&T phone. I bought a Verizon phone. Ah, we're not going to be able to talk with each other, <laughs> right? We never worry about that. We, we go to Best Buy and we buy or go to, you know, go wherever you go and you buy the cheapest, best phone for your needs and you know it's going to be connected with everything else. Right now in healthcare, we have hundreds of networks, literally. Some of them are state and local networks. Some of them are nationwide networks, but they really don't connect with each other. And what we want to be able to do and the direction we got from Congress was basically, not to put words in their mouth, was basically say, do for these clinical networks what cell phone networks you know, have today. That you purchase the system you want, you join the network you want, and you'll have the assurance that you will be safely connected to every other network and you don't need to worry about that anymore. And is the network technically encrypted or VPN type of version traveling over the Internet? Or are there actual still networks like we used to have, value-added networks that predated the Internet? Yeah, no, these are, I mean, you know, in the, you know sort of in, a, in the modern age now, everyone has commodity Internet. Um, so, you know, basically a network is about establishing governance and then establishing security protocols and you know technical infrastructure like public key infrastructure, for example, to define what is the network. If you're a part of that, you know that PKI infrastructure using X509 certs and you know all of that regular infrastructure, then you are now a part of our network. And there are rules about 
who's in and who's out and what are the rules of the road. We're not laying down T1, T3 you know, lines anymore. Uh, we can just use the commodity internet, but there is a security overlay so that only those who are a part of the network can actually you know, exchange information with each other. And in the same way that your banking information is highly protected, even though you're using commodity internet, right? There's no special line between you and the bank. You've just got additional security provisions on top. We use the same set of security protocols for TEPCO in this kind of a, um, network exchange as well. But the networks, again, it's network of networks. The networks are already established networks. I mean, that's the principle is that we're not starting from scratch to build these from the ground up. We're saying these are networks that already have, you know, a significant number of participants already, and they have to meet certain eligibility requirements as well as, you know, technical performance requirements to be considered a TEPCO network. And once they pass those tests, then they're able to you know, go live and connect it with each other. And first responders and that whole community often generates the initial information on health when they respond to someone who might be injured or burned or whatever the case might be. Are those party to TEFCA also? That's a great general example, actually, of some of the gaps that exist in the marketplace today and that we want to be able to use TEFCA to help fill. So as I said, there are a number of networks now. I mean, there are literally hundreds of networks across the country that exchange information. And the private sector has actually done a fantastic job. Before joining the federal government in, you know, in 2001, I was very much a part of that, sitting on the boards of some of these nonprofit networks. And so I saw firsthand how much they had accomplished. But the private sector alone can't do it alone um, because healthcare, as you pointed out earlier, the federal government and state governments are very involved in healthcare. I mean, they deliver healthcare, they pay for healthcare, they set the rules of the road for you know for healthcare. So it's very hard for the private sector on its own to solve all these problems. And so that's what TEFCA represents: is really saying, all right, the private sector has taken it as far as it can possibly do. It's done a great job, but now we need public-private collaboration with the power of federal government convening to help to bring that together to say, what are the other things we wanna do? One is what I described, which is connecting the networks together. Second set of things is there are gaps that the market itself hasn't really solved and has difficulty solving. One is, as you point out, first responders. So we're actually working with a group of first responders who are now already working on joining one of the approved networks so that we do have the ability then for you know for first responders, ambulances and you know and other first responders to be able to share information with provider organizations. Other gaps that I would point to though are public health. Huge gap. Right now there's even after a pandemic, public health agencies were not able to connect to the networks, the nationwide networks that exist today for a variety of reasons related to the complexity of regulatory frameworks and the fragmentation of jurisdictions and all of that. Nothing the private sector can solve on its own. That's something that, that the federal government, you know, ONC and the CDC and jurisdictions working together. Last thing I'll point to are two things. Another one is individual access. You as a patient ought to be able to access the network to get your own information, right? Well, I mean, that, that seems like ought to be a fundamental right. So we're working very hard to say that's what TEPCA needs to be able to support as well. There's lots of complexity there. And that's why, you know, again, this public-private collaboration is needed. And then finally, payers, healthcare payers. Um, they have been excluded from these networks for a variety of competitive reasons that, you know, that exist in the market. Again, we as the federal government have been saying, you know what, we understand there are competitive issues, but that can't be what prevents us to get to the higher level of healthcare interoperability that American citizens need. And so that's what we're going to do is break through that to fill that gap as well. Yeah. And so in a lot of ways, the banking and credit card systems and clearances, and there's a whole complexity behind all of that, or say the airlines have, you know, inter-airline clearance mechanisms and payment mechanisms going back decades. Those are pretty good models, too. They are, absolutely. You know, there's a lot of similarities there, 
I think one of the differences and why we need more of this proactive public-private sort of collaboration here is that unlike those other industries, the federal government, I would, I mean, the federal government is involved in all those industries, right? So it's not as if it's not, but the federal government plays a unique and very large role in healthcare that's somewhat different than, you know, in other industries. And the other thing about healthcare is that it's unbelievably fragmented, much more so than banking, that, you know, the industries you named, right? Banking, airlines, that have a lot of consolidation to them, healthcare is unbelievably fragmented. And so it takes something like the federal government to help to just convene everyone to say, all right, we're going to get everyone together and work with states as well to say, we're not stepping on states' toes, but we need to have something that gives more systemness to our system. That's the important role that the federal government plays in this. And late last year, the TEFCA group, your group, updated from 1.0 to 1.1 which indicates the relative newness of the whole enterprise here in Tefka. But what changed recently? 2.0 is, is just about to happen. Um, so uh, not to get too wonky here. So and, and just to set the table here for everyone, just so everyone knows what's happened. Um, when we came into this administration, we said within a year, we are going to get Tefka, the core Tefka framework, out to the public for the public to react to and provide us comments back in with an eye towards saying we're going to go live. We're going to have networks that step forward and say that they want to do this voluntarily because the 21st Century Cures Act didn't give the federal government, my office, any budget or any new authority for TEFCA and explicitly said that TEFCA has to be voluntary. So I have no ability to order, nor does Secretary Becerra have the ability to order anyone to join TEFCA. So we have to make it a true public-private collaboration model that said, how can we work together to get to something that all of us want and that the private sector sees as valuable? Otherwise, they're not going to invest their money. So within a year, we made available version 1.0 of this common agreement, which is a common contract that everyone across the country would sign if they want to participate in TEPCA Exchange. So everyone knows the rules of the road. Again, if you're in Nome, Alaska or Omaha, you know that if you have signed this agreement and you're sharing information with a provider organization in Nome, Alaska, they've agreed to the same set of rules. Right. You don't have to worry about, you know, is there a different set of rules here that I don't understand that are going to get me in trouble. So the next thing we did is we said now we invite private sector networks to step forward and join TEFCA as networks. And I'm really pleased to report that seven of them stepped forward a year after this was a year ago, stepped forward and said we are committed to implementing TEFCA. Some of those are very well known, I think, to a lot of people. Epic, for example, very large EHR vendor. They stepped forward and volunteered to be one of these networks. The Commonwealth Health Alliance, which covers Oracle Health, which is the VA's system. For yeah, that's the obvious one I was going to ask about. Right. Athena Health, uh, eClinical Works, Meditech are all under the Commonwealth Health Alliance umbrella. eHealth Exchange, which has a number of federal government participants in it. The VA, for example, participates in that as well as others. So significant networks step forward, those seven. And now, a year later... As of January, seven are now live. All seven of those are live, exchanging information with each other. And then 2.0, what 2.0 does, and sorry, last point, I know I'm going on a lot here. What the 2.0 common agreement does, which we're going to release before the end of the first quarter here, so the end of March, is it upgrades the technical standards to allow API-based exchange for those who are technically knowledgeable, um, which is you know a more modern way of, of having information exchange in the same way that you download apps on your phone and to make it that easy and that convenient, that's what TEFCA will support um, in this calendar year. Dr. Mickey Kripathy is National Coordinator for Health Information Technology at the Department of Health and Human Services. Thank you for a thorough update. 
Thanks so much, Tom. Really appreciate it. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information about TEFCA at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. 
we're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. 
And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including Um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has 
been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.